Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, August 20th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? I think you've already begun teaching this fall. How is that going? Uh, I'm getting ready to teach. I just finished some executive teaching in the summer, which was interesting. Me standing in an empty classroom talking to 190 something executive MBA students. So that was interesting. But honestly, I found it very energizing. I prefer being with students face to face, obviously, but the Zoom guests that you can get to class, you know, I got a prominent CEO, got a White House advisor just to join for a quick discussion. I, I think while this is not the way I would want to teach, there's a lot of pluses too. Great. Well, we, we've had some questions um, submitted to us. And I thought maybe we could go through a couple of them. Uh, the first one is, as you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the effect of the enhanced unemployment insurance payments that were in place through the end of July. The federal government contributed an additional $600 per week to whatever amount a state was otherwise paying. By one estimate, about two-thirds of unemployed workers received more from their unemployment payments than they had been receiving in wages. Some employers of low-wage workers, particularly restaurants, complained they were having difficulty encouraging workers to come back, workers they had laid off during the months they required to be closed to return to work. Congress hasn't been able to agree to extend the extra payments, but President Trump has found the money to add $300 per week to the state unemployment benefits while encouraging states to add an additional $100. What are your thoughts on the program? Well, you know, it's a great question. There's several big issues in unemployment insurance right now in terms of its design and this is one of them. And the way I think about it is you're trying to balance two goals. So in unemployment insurance, you're trying to replace the lost income from somebody who's lost his or her job. And that sounds like a good thing. It, it bolsters incomes, it bolsters consumption. It's what we economists would call social insurance. Having said that, if a benefit is too generous, it can impede search uh, for a new job. And I think that's what many business leaders uh, and some policymakers have talked about. Uh, in some recent work that Jason Furman and uh, Tim Geithner and Melissa Carney and I did, you know, we suggested having unemployment insurance benefit plus ups uh, be as a percentage of wages and not as a fixed dollar amount, so it could vary, uh, no more than $400 a month and driven by triggers so that it would be used only when unemployment is very high as opposed to all of the time. So I think we're, we're looking at this as, as you know, and you know, I've talked about this a lot, the politics of this right now are very bad, but the uh, econ 101 aspects I think are pretty clear. You have social insurance on the one hand, but you also want people to get to uh, the next thing and the best job match on the other hand. Yeah, I know that one of the, um points that, that people raised about going from a flat amount to an amount that was key to the, the wages that the person who lost his or her job had previously been receiving is that some of the state unemployment insurance um, computer systems are rather antiquated 
I think some of the states had said that it would be very difficult for them to reprogram. It was relatively easy to say, here's an extra $600, but to say, here's 240 for one person and then 380 for another was hard for them. Do you know if there's been any progress in, in overcoming that technical barrier? I think it is hard. It's kind of crazy that we would be designing a policy based on whether a state has a 1960s era programming language in its legacy computer systems, but that's where we are. To me, one of the big issues in unemployment insurance, less an economics one, but more an administrative one, is trying to get these systems uh, up to date. This is not rocket science. There are plenty of firms in the private sector that pay lots of people that know how to do these things. So I, I think this should be uh, this should be doable, but it's not a reason to you know, change the program in a way that would have deleterious long run effects, not just on the economy, but on individuals who wind up staying out of work longer than they should, leading to what you know some economists would call labor market scarring, a lost income from work going forward. Yeah, along those lines, there was an interesting working paper came out uh, a week or two ago. You may have seen it by uh, Nicholas Petrosky Nadal of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And he was kind of making this point that if you look at it from the point of view of a worker who's thinking, you know, I'm, I'm actually getting more as an unemployment insurance check than I was getting as um, working for a restaurant or some other job person would probably want to take into account that eventually that unemployment check will stop, but if they give up on that job, they're potentially uh, hurting themselves down the line. And he does some um, calibrating of a little model that indicates that if people are taking that into account, if they're saying, gee, you know, it's not just what uh, I'm being, I would be paid if I went back to work now, but it's also the fact that once I'm back at work, I can presumably keep that job on into the future. That um, the disincentive effects may be smaller than we sometimes think. If we just are comparing, okay, you're getting $800 a week from unemployment insurance, but only 700 from your job. But he said, well, probably if a worker is actually doing the calculation right, they think, well, yeah, it's 700 versus 800, but down the line, it might be 700 versus versus nothing after my unemployment insurance runs out. I think that's, that's entirely possible and it's a reasonable discussion to have. But I think if we wanted to give more income to low wage workers, rather than doing it through a, an unemployment insurance benefit that seems high relative to what they got working, why not do a pandemic version of the earned income tax credit? You know, we, we've talked about this in our book, and you and I've talked about this for years, that the EITC is supposed to be a work support program. It could be expanded and used, and that's a way of bolstering incomes, because I've heard many political uh, folks say, we like the $600 because we think low-wage workers should make more. Well, that's a reasonable point of view, but maybe that should be done through the earned income tax credit. So I just think there are lots of these mechanisms and it's actually a good teaching moment to get students thinking about how do people think about work versus no work decisions? You know, what are the trade-offs between social ins insurance on the one hand and search on the other? How does the EITC interact with all of this? I think these are all interesting. I, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that that's right. It's always been a little bit of a puzzle to me that the earned income tax credit 
is less popular politically than the minimum wage or other um, policies that have significant disincentive effects. In terms of the unemployment insurance providing as support to people's incomes, the, the debate made me think of a paper years ago that you may have read by uh, Christina Romer of, of the University of California, Berkeley, where she talks about the hardy perennial among economists. Why was the Great Depression of the 1930s so severe? And she talks about the fact that right at the beginning in late 1929 and early 1930, if you look at the data, you see a real collapse in consumer spending on durables, that people stop buying cars and they stop ordering dining room sets and they, they stop buying uh, washing machines and things like that. And her argument is that the lack of unemployment insurance, because of course, in those days, um, the federal program had not yet begun. That began in the late 1930s. It meant that if you lost your job, your income dropped to zero. And you either had to live off your savings or you know, borrow from your friends or family or, or rely on, on private charity. So it was a situation where you probably didn't want to stick your neck out and say, this is a good time to buy a car or some other durable. So it, it's kind of the extreme case of what happens if you have a severe downturn and, and there isn't the income support that people need to continue to do something like their normal buying habits. I think that's right. And I would add to the unemployment example, the way business people would react if your revenues uh, and your profitability are headed quite south, as in the depression, as uh, in the current period, you may step back and say, I'm not going to open that new factory or buy additional equipment or refurbish things or hire more people. And I think these are big decisions that make social insurance important. And if you think about the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic, unemployment insurance was a great buffer. You know, personal incomes have remained robust uh, during this period, despite massive unemployment because of, in part, the unemployment insurance expansions. Even for businesses, the flip side I said a moment ago, Things like the Paycheck Protection Program and other programs that uh, bolster them have acted as a kind of social insurance. One difference now from the example you gave from Christy Romer, of course, is that it's not goods consumption at the moment that's such a problem. It's really services. So right now, either because they can't be offered or I wouldn't do them if they were, there are a number of services consumption categories that are just very, very low. And that's going to take a while. That's very different from a typical recession. It is. And I, I thought it was interesting looking over the, the data on how people's savings have really increased. And uh, if you look at things like balances and people's checking accounts and things like that, it really is similar to coming out of World War II where people had built up a lot of savings and they didn't have much to spend it on because a lot of production had been shifted towards um, tanks and planes and things. And that actually, once you had the conversion to um, peacetime production, things went better than a lot of economists have, had expected, in part because there was this big buffer of, of savings that people could spend out of. And it's kind of an optimistic maybe uh, indicator right now that 
if the pandemic doesn't drag along too long and we get a, a vaccine that is um, effective, that people do have the means to step back in and, and buy things that they haven't been buying, including maybe dining out or going to theaters and that sort of thing, the, the industries that have been particularly hard hit. Well, I think there's a lot to that, Tony, but only up to a point. So uh, it is true that if you take this into the Second World War, there was actually a lot of fear among business people that the economy would actually collapse, that the, the big, quote, fall in GDP by arithmetic from lowering government consumption on military uh, hardware and things like that would, would reduce output and spending. That didn't happen because of the pent-up demand uh, that you mentioned. But a lot of that pent-up demand was for goods uh, whose purchase had been delayed. It is true that if the pandemic were over next week, I might well go out to a restaurant, something I haven't done uh, during the pandemic, but I'm only going to eat one dinner. So I'm not going to make up for all the dinners that I could have had in the past. So a decline in services you know, is just that, whether it's healthcare or food out or whatever the consumption is, there's only so much we can do. So I think the real question is just, you know, what is this structural change in the economy going to be? And do all these uh, savings and flexibility built in for households and businesses help that period of adjustment? That's a huge unknown. And again, very different from a traditional recession. Yeah, well, one last thing maybe before we move on to another question. And when discussing the unemployment insurance with my students, I sometimes ask them, you know, if you have a house, you can buy a fire insurance policy from an insurance company, and um, you can buy a car insurance policy in case you have an accident on your car. Uh, you can even buy a disability insurance policy uh, to protect your wages or your salary if you become ill or you have an accident that keeps you from working. But you can't insure your income against the risk of being laid off. There's no private unemployment insurance that you can go out and buy. And I asked them to ponder why that's the case. It's, a, it's an interesting problem. And I think for many of the kinds of property or casualty insurance problems you mentioned, a private insurance company can easily do it because you're dealing with some idiosyncratic risks, largely, not entirely, but largely, uh, and you can pool those. Uh, one of the problems, of course, in the labor market and unemployment insurance it's not just that I might lose my job and, and only I lose my job. It's that lots of people are going to lose their jobs. And that is, it's dominated by common shocks like recessions or downturns in particular industries. And that's very hard to insure against because it's a private firm can't really pool the risks of that uh, as easily. It doesn't mean that there's no insurance possibility. I think years ago, the, the late Martin Feldstein had written on private accounts that people would use tax preferences to save into, much like they do now for retirement, that could provide financial flexibility as a complement to unemployment insurance. But in general, it's going to be hard to get a private solution. Yeah, the, the risk pooling problem um, reminds me of something going on in California right now, where a lot of insurance companies are trying to withdraw from offering fire insurance in the areas that have unfortunately been plagued by wildfires. And it's the same kind of thing as we talk about in, in the book. The basis of insurance is risk pooling. You have a lot of people pay their premiums, and then randomly someone has 
their house burned down because of uh, faulty electrical wiring or whatever. Doesn't work so well if you have an area that suddenly has become prone to a great number of fires. And as you say, the same thing applies to trying to engage in risk pooling against unemployment, against a recession where large numbers of people simultaneously lose their jobs rather than someone having lost their job because their particular company might have gone out of work. Right. Okay, here's, a, here's another a topic that uh, we were asked to discuss. As you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether the federal government should have a policy of trying to get firms to move back to the United States, the whole of the vaccine supply chain, and maybe the supply chains for some other pharmaceuticals, antibiotics maybe, and for personal protective equipment, masks and gowns and things like that. What do you think of that policy debate? Well, you know, it actually raises an interesting set of questions, but I think, I'd be interested in your take on this too, it heads in the wrong direction. So first, why are the questions interesting? I, I do think we're learning that a lot of the supply chains were not resilient enough. I mean, put aside whether something is done in the United States or some other country, if a supply chain is optimized for perfection, i.e. nothing can go wrong, it may be efficient in the best possible states, but things do happen in the world and it can be very, very disruptive for the firm, let alone the economy. The reason I think it's, it's gotten muddled is because a lot of this debate is about U.S. versus China or domestic versus foreign more generally. And I think there, it's, it's less about that than it is just about uh, improving resiliency. And I think the the question for firms and for policymakers is what's the trade-off between getting more efficiency and productivity in most states of the world with the problem of a costly shutdown in really bad states of the world? And in some very limited areas, like a, a critical national defense problem, maybe you do want to think about domestic rules. But I think for most goods, that just seems uh, too much. I don't know what you think. I think you make an interesting point because um, in terms of does the federal government actually need to step in, at this point, we're not sure how the companies themselves are going to respond because obviously this is um, new information for them. They put their supply chains together, not expecting that it could be possible that we'd have a worldwide pandemic and certain places would have to shut down and would not be able to, to get um, products shipped out of them. So to some extent, uh, I feel as if we have to wait and see whether the pharmaceutical companies who themselves have more information than it's likely that Congress would have in trying to kind of micromanage this, make some adjustments themselves so that they make their supply chains more robust. In the end, it, it does become kind of a positive versus normative question as well, because as we talk about in the, in the book, economics is pretty good at giving you at least an estimate what the cost would be if we decide that, gee, you know, we just have to bring the whole of the vaccine supply chain within the, the boundaries of the United States. E economics can give you at least estimates of what the cost will be because uh, essentially you're overriding comparative advantage there. But, we have the, um, the supply chains multinational because there are companies in other countries that can do it better or cheaper than, than it can be done in the United States. 
but if you say, well, this is just a vital national security matter, we have to have vaccines produced wholly within the United States, that really becomes a normative question, right? That economics can't resolve. It's a really political issue that here are the costs if you wanted to do this. Um, are those costs too high to do it uh, or not? Really becomes a question of, well, just how much of a national security issue do you think that this is? I agree. Yeah, as um, I, I know you probably experience this as well. There's the, the students who kind of really buy into economics, sometimes they think, Economics has all the answers, right? You just do the economics of this and we come out with uh, yes, do Y and not X. But there are certain issues like this that have a normative component and you, um, you have to take that into account. Economics can't really settle the issue. I agree. I think what economics can bring to business leaders or to policymakers is we do know which questions to ask and what pieces of information can inform a decision. But, you know, for a business leader or a politician, the trade-offs may be different. They may be involved non-economic factors, and they may involve a weighting of probabilities. So we might say 99% of the time, this particular structure, say a supply chain, will work well. 1% of the time is a catastrophic failure. Depending on what the it is, that 1% may be viewed by the decision maker is not worth the candle. So that, that's, we can give him or her the advice, but after that, there is more to life than economics. Oh, no, no, we, we don't <laughs> let that out. We don't let that yeah. out. Glenn, we've already discussed in earlier podcasts how in the long run, the pandemic is likely to affect different industries. We had a, a question about a couple of things. One was with respect to college sports, that if, do you have a lot of college uh, sports budgets are really dependent on having, particularly for the larger schools, having college football played in big stadiums where 100,000 people can come. If that is not something we're likely to be able to do, and of course some, some schools have already canceled the fall football season, does that mean that college sports will have to contract because a lot of that football money is used to support lacrosse and softball and swimming and other non-revenue producing sports. And related to this, in some ways, or the person who asked this question also raised this point, is that there are certain areas that are really dependent on tourism. You know, Orlando with the, uh, the theme parks, Las Vegas with the casinos, Hawaii, um, even Manhattan has a lot of stores and hotels and restaurants that really depend on people outside of New York coming and staying there and, and, and eating. So what are your thoughts about this on how these adjustments might be made? Well, you know, it's a, it's a very good question. On, on college sports, the cross-subsidy from big uh, spectator sports like uh, football or basketball, maybe even baseball, have, sub, have subsidized some of the other sports that have less of a fan base, which means that either those sports would have to develop some sort of revenue base or private philanthropy donors who have a particular interest in that sport would have to step up. We've already seen some pretty prominent universities, indeed some well-funded ones, canceling a lot of those sports. And you know, to the extent that we think these sports are part of the college experience, uh, the athletic experience is part of the college experience, uh, 
there will be a search for new revenue models. And I expect that we are going to see that as opposed to outright cancellation. The Orlando and New York issue is an interesting one. You know, I grew up near Orlando. I actually worked at Disney World when I was a kid. I think that places like Orlando will be rethinking their tourist model. I mean, tourism will come back. It may come back in different kinds of forms. And the mix between leisure and business travel may change. Hotels, restaurants, uh, the travel industry will have to adapt for that. You know, here in New York, uh, at Columbia, where I teach, our undergraduates are not coming back this fall. And already the uh, restaurants are starting to feel that. These young people would have come from all over the world to Morningside Heights, and they're not going to be here, uh, at least during the fall. So I, I think this, this is a big deal, but businesses do have a, habit, have a habit of adapting and adapting pretty well. It's just gonna be very painful in between. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, and of course, a lot depends on whether we're living through a one-off event or are we entering a bad new age of intermittent pandemics where we go a couple of years and then a pandemic comes back. My own guess, and this would be down the line, is that if we were to have uh, another pandemic of this magnitude, we probably would see some pretty serious structural changes because at that point, people would say, okay, uh, there's certain ways we've been doing things that we may just not be able to get back to for the indefinite future. Yeah, if that happened, I'd have to learn how to cook, which I have. <laughs> yeah, well, you were saying that, you know, we, we can only eat one restaurant meal. I intend to eat uh, three meals at uh, restaurants <laughs> per day to make up for months okay. of not being able to eat. That sounds great. Glenn, I think we've had a good discussion today. A reminder to our listeners that this podcast is now available on iTunes. If you would like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. And if you're so moved, you can leave us a review. Please also keep checking our blog, HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.